Welcome to the Supervisory Development Course podcast from the University of Minnesota. This episode is a recording of a keynote and panel discussion on the topic of academic leadership development in the department, division, and cooperative. The recording begins with a keynote address by Brian Boer, Dean of the College of Food, Agricultural, and Natural Resource Sciences, or CFANS. Our panel members are Abimbola Asoha, the Associate Dean for Research, Creative Scholarship, and Engagement from the College of Design, Jim Burdine, the Department Head of Plant Pathology in CFANS, Wendy Lumen, the Cooperative Chair in Child and Family Health in the School of Nursing, Diane Newmark Steiner, the Division Head in Epidemiology and Community Health in the School of Public Health, and Brandon Sullivan, the Senior Director of Leadership and Talent Development in the Office of Human Resources. After the panel, Dr. Brandon Sullivan and Dr. Chelsea Dunkel will share research findings from leadership and talent development. Welcome and thank you for attending today's event, Academic Leadership Development in the College Department Division and Cooperative. We are thrilled that so many of our colleagues have joined us to discuss leadership and organizational development in the Academic Department School and College. My name is Rosie Berry, and I manage leadership assessment and development in leadership and talent development, and I'm going to be moderating today's panel. Thank you in advance to our panelists. We are excited to have you here today to share your leadership journeys, wisdom, and experiences. I'd like to remind all of you that we're going to be audiotaping today's session, and we're going to make it available on our website. Also, once it is available, we'll be sending an email to everyone who RSVP'd today, and we'll let you know that it's available so you can take a look at that if you want to. Please turn now into your program for an overview of the agenda today. There should be printed copies of the agenda at your seats and can also be found at z.umn.edu slash engagedu. Programs were also attached to the RSVP confirmation sent on Monday. So let's take a look at what's, what we have on the agenda. First, we have a keynote address from Dean Brian Boer entitled Academic Leadership Development. After that, we will have a panel discussion with our esteemed University of Minnesota academic leaders who will provide their perspectives on leadership and organizational development in their academic unit and in their respective school and college. We will be sure to leave plenty of time for questions from the audience at the conclusion of the discussion. After the panel, Drs. Brandon Sullivan and Chelsea Dunkel will share information about insights that we have uncovered as a result of the research on academic leadership that we have been doing in LTD. Specifically, we will discuss the connection between our panelists' experiences and what research has found to support academic leadership assessment and development. So let's get started. It is my honor to introduce you to our keynote speaker, Dean Brian Bohr. Brian is the Dean of the College of Food, Agricultural, and Natural Resources Sciences, CFANS, and Director of the Minnesota Agricultural Experiment Station. He is also a Professor of Applied Economics. Dr. Boer served as Interim Dean and Director from August 2013 to June 2014. Prior to that Interim Dean appointment, he led the Division of Applied Economics and Agricultural Education at the University of Minnesota. He held the E. Fred Kohler Chair in Agribusiness and Information Systems from 2004 to 2010. He has received the Outstanding Policy Contribution Award from the American Agricultural Economics Association, 
the University of Minnesota College of Food, Agricultural, and Natural Resources Sciences Distinguished Teaching Award, as well as the CFANS Distinguished Faculty Award. Dean Bohr will be sharing with us his experiences and insights in his leadership journey at the university and in CFANS in his keynote address titled Academic Leadership Development. Please join me in welcoming Dean Bohr. Thanks, Rosie. Um, it's always great to be a dean of a college that nobody can pronounce even when they read the name, right? It's sort of food, agricultural, natural resource sciences. We sort of have people say that out. Just CFANS is just fine. Um, it is a pleasure to be here today. I'll talk a little bit about our experience as I go ahead. But first question, just a quick one. How many people in here are leaders? Well, that's a good number. So maybe my, my work's done already. I'll just worry about helping to figure out what we do. Um, but I do want to start with just, um, we've been on quite a journey in CFANS for a while now, and I wanted to talk through just kind of a bit of where we started at, what CFANS is about, because I think there's a contextual piece to how we engage with leadership, and as leaders think about where we fit, and ours was really, you'd like to say, um, I'll never say that I've had a plan ever, I would get a red card for that one, I guess I'll cover just out red cards and yellow cards, um, but kind of a thing as we were looking at some of the challenges, opportunities we had, talking with department heads, talking with people, kind of emerged into the need for leadership and how we'd approach that. And I would say that journey would have never happened and never have been successful, certainly without LTD and the support that we've had. In fact, I was going through the list of, uh, of people in LTD as I was preparing for this, and we've employed eight of, I think, 14 people. So we're kind of an employment agency for LTD. Uh, Rosie has an annex on the St. Paul campus. She comes and hangs out, just kind of takes orders as she goes through the day. Um, but it has been a phenomenal um, uh, experience. I think we've made some progress over the years. I think we really have moved in a direction, and I'll talk about some of those as we go as we go forward. Um, so, for those of you, oh, you have the uh, okay, you have the old slides. Um, so, for those of, that's fine, we'll just we'll just roll with it. So, for those of you that aren't familiar with the St. Paul campus, um, we are. So, actually, I'm going to skip. So, I'll skip to this. So, I'll talk a little bit about for those who aren't familiar. <laughs> Okay, we're getting back on track here. Um, so this is sort of, how many have this view of the St. Paul campus? Everybody from the Minneapolis campus has to raise their hands. <laughs> Thank you for humoring me. Um, this actually does really happen there. I will point out the building in the background is College of Education and Human Development's um, Social Works School, School of Social Work. So we have other people on campus, CBS and so on. But oftentimes we still get re referred to as the farm campus. Um, and just wanted to give a sense of, of you know, what we are about today as much as anything. And many of you have probably seen this photo of the yellow M, block M in a soybean field. And that yellow in those soybeans is a mutagenic version of soybeans that they're looking for higher improved amino acid profiles for food consumption. And it works really from what's happening in the lab and, and thinking about molecular genetics to how do we take those soybeans. And the challenge of soybeans are you can't digest them easily when they're in their raw form. And so the utilization of those in food ingredients and taking those to the end market and working through our food science program to do that. So that little block M that's out there tells a lot about where we are today as compared to the idea of a farm campus. Our science is deep. We work across foundational science to very applied science. So in our college, so I always get confused when in the university we talk about interdisciplinary work, we have a department that has biologists, chemists, physicists, hydrologists, climatologists, and a few microbiologists in there thrown in in one department, that's soil, water, and climate, and working to solve challenges of microbiomes and soils and what those have to do with plant health, our plant pathology program, 
and then thinking about kind of the macro scale of how does that go to improving food availability across the globe. And our natural resources side, of course, is all about systems. So we work from really foundational science to applied science, and we work from the molecular level to a global systems level. Um, and so the point of that is we have a very, I'd say a relatively complex college. And in addition, since I look in the audience and I see people and I think of things, we have, I'm an economist, as was pointed out in my introduction, we have a social science component. Because traditionally, of course, there's this linkage between both our production technologies and what those meant for farmers, but now it's farm policy. We have, a, we have a, a, an early childhood development program that's being run with HRIR and the, the Humphrey program, looking at how early childhood de development impacts future earnings and income rates, for example. So we really have quite an extensive and, and uh, expansive portfolio uh, that we work within. Um, the, the, the really, so Pete Mose here, who's the, the director of the Landscape Arboretum, so I can't resist that um, we have a really, in addition to our disciplines, we have a really operationally complex college um, that I think is important to look at. And so this one slide, the slide on, on your left is the Bell Museum, the new Bell Museum. So how many people have been to the Bell Museum? Oh, that's phenomenal. Great. Have you become members? Okay, become member. I was going to do my first sales pitch, go to the Bell. Second one, get a membership. Third one, think about some philanthropy for supporting the Bell Museum and education for K-12 throughout the state of Minnesota. Thank you. <laughs> so, so the shameless commerce and the Arboretum as well. And we think of those as public outreach components. Most of you have visited them. How many have been to the Arboretum? Fantastic. This is a great time of year to go, right, Pete? Um, take the three-mile walk and see what's happening there. And that they'll combined reach 600,000 people in Minnesota this year will have an experience at the Arboretum or at the Bell Museum. And I'm probably underestimating that now uh, because the Bell has been very successful. What you miss about those, for example, is that they're also research centers. So the Arboretum, if you've enjoyed Honeycrisp apples or now the first Kiss apple, for example, those were developed at the Horticultural Research Center that's co-located with the Arboretum. The woody plants you buy are part of that. And the Bell Museum actually has a mission around curatorial um, cur curation of biological samples from mammalian to geological and across the spectrum there. So these are really enterprises that we actually run for this classes, I call them profit centers. Um, you know, they're, they're functioning based off memberships, revenue from people attending, sales of the little Manny the Mammoth things you can get at the Bell Museum, which are fun. We called it Manny because that's from the Ice Age, of course, um, the movie. Um, but we try and operate those in a business function, which is kind of unique in an academic setting, um, that we actually think of that. How do we generate revenue? How do we drive customers into those? At the same time, we're facilitating our research. But those are just two local versions. Um, we also have 10 research and outreach centers across the state. So we have, and that goes from the northeast corner of the state, where we have the Hubbardcheck Wilderness Research Center, um, which is obviously towards our natural resources side, natural ecologies and forested regions, got lakes, and so we do a little bit of limnology work there as well, to the southwest corner, which is more of a high plains, cropping systems that you think about in agriculture. Um, and so that spectrum is broad, again, of what we work in, very applied out in the, in the world, as I call it. And the key element to that from a leadership perspective is we're a little bit like a system campus in ourselves. We have the St. Paul campus as our home base, but we have faculty and staff located out across the state of Minnesota doing the work they do. And this starts to weave into the story about how do you start to create an engaged and collective activity around what our goals and objectives are in something that's this complex, has this amount of diversity around our faculty and the work that we do, and then we're also located with faculty and staff around the entire state. And that's essentially the story of why we started to think about our, our strategies. 
And I left one point out there I think is really fascinating for us um, in, in the context of this is, our, is our, our student populations. And I'll just quick, this collage, it's, it's the only collage I have in, in, this, in this picture, but it is about that diversity. So one of my, my fun roles is, um, and actually it's kind of for one of our, our CFANS leads people the other day said, you must have a hard job. And it's during the legislative session. Um, I spend a lot of time at the legislature, probably more so um, than a lot of other deans do, because we have, uh, I'd say, really engaged constituent groups across the state. Um, and if you think about our fisheries, wildlife, forestry, um, of course, we go from foresters to wildlife habitat. We you know, jokingly call them the hooks and bullet group, the people that are doing fishing and hunting, along with people that are preservationists. On the crop and agriculture side, of course, we have urban agriculture and some of the we work, for example, the aquaponics group. I work with Second Harvest Harland. They have a, a hydroponics facility growing lettuce in a container shipment. Um, we work with small urban gardens, and we work with some of the largest, you look at those combines on this photo, some of the largest commercial agricultural producers in the state. And if you follow this at all, in any way, if you read the Star Tribune, read an opinion page, people have opinions about what we do. And oftentimes, those opinions are not congruent opinions. And different perspectives, vested interests, just the world we work in. And that comes to our students as well. So we have students that come together who are from urban communities, from underrepresented communities across the, the Twin Cities. And we have students coming from rural Minnesota. And actually at the point where we were supposed to have this in the wintertime, and I was just realizing today we've probably gone 100 degrees in temperature variation from when this was supposed to happen late January. But just that week before I had gone from Elgin, Minnesota. How many people know where Elgin is? That's, all, that's incredible. How many have been to tailgaters? Okay, none of you have been to the bar. Um, my, my meeting was in the bar, tailgaters, and gators is spelled G-A-T-O-R-S, which I was kind of, that's ironic because there's not a gator within, you know, thousands of miles of here. Um, but I was there, and then the next day, or about three days later, I drove up to White Earth. We have some work we're doing at the White Earth Reservation, meeting with the tribal chair there, um, Chair Tibbs, who unfortunately passed away this last week. But um, you take that spectrum of work we have, and Elgin, Minnesota is a farming community just in southeast Minnesota, for those of you who aren't familiar. Um, and then, of course, the White Earth Reservation up in northeast or northwest Minnesota. And that's a very diverse perspective across our college. And, and, and there's tension around those areas, right? There's tension in that question of how are we doing what we do and how do we do that successfully. So that background, oh, this has really changed me up now. <laughs> that background gives me some perspective. Um, so I'll use Rutan and Hyami. Um, I'll, I'll go this route then. So um, that perspective I put up there only because, you know, a lot of times our leadership was driven by necessity. We work in that world. We have a not a lead, need to connect together. And one of the things that I came into when I was first dean, um, we, do, we did have a $5 million structural deficit in the college. Um, we had challenges regarding um, the number, you know, we, we have the same challenges. This is the baby boomer era where we're starting to see a lot of transition in faculty, a lot of transition in staff the ongoing public funding issues, you know the litany of things that are happening in higher education that create what amount to some challenges in leadership. And we realized very quickly, and this, this, this slide that's here is about induced innovation. Vern Rutan um, founded the International Rice Research Institute at one point in time. He's a faculty member of the building at St. Paul campus, named for that. And the idea that was on here is this idea of induced innovation, that we actually in our strategy had to think about what are we gonna do as a university, as a college, given we have this diverse and very engaged group of people, very distinctive disciplines that cut across a wide swath, some of these financial challenges, and how are we going to, to bring people together to work on that? Because it's a place where you know, people can lose morale, it's tough to make some of the decisions and you know, budgets we have. 
um, facing a structural deficit? How are we going to get people to take actions and recognize, most importantly, that they could have actions? There are powerful ways that people could do their work and help to be leaders in overcoming that and reading those challenges, rather than having people sort of, you know, go back in their office and say, well, look at this, we don't have enough money to do things. And we have a lot of levers to do that. So we look, really looked at how we would start to induce our innovation, think about that strategy. And the idea that came out of that was really, which is, I, I don't have it on there. It's, it's, it's a phrase only an economist could love, and I'd actually like to do poll people and see fans and see if they know this by heart now. But we called it, we were gonna design our mission with social and economic value. Isn't that catchy? I can, see, I can see people writing it down. Nobody's even laughing about that. You actually, it's that bad that you can't even make a joke about how bad it is. But it was kind of this weird notion. We were talking to, and actually I'll, I'll pull Jim Burdine and Francis Holmans, our department heads, into that. Early on, we were starting to face this and kind of came up with saying, what are we going to do? Well, we have to design our mission. Um, go to this slide, sorry, I love this slide, just from the trivia perspective. Um, we need to design our mission. How are we going to do what we do? Our mission is always front and center. And we had to have social value, we're a public university, and generate economic value so that we can sustain our mission. Because without sustaining that mission with economic value, there is no mission. So how do we leave that together? So you wonder why Aretha Franklin in the middle of a Blues Brothers photo is part of that. And in that, how many people have seen the Blues Brothers? Okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I thought that was gonna be something that I only knew. So this is the only movie, trivia, that Aretha Franklin was ever in. And the reason I bring her into these sometimes, anybody know the song she sang in that movie? No, she, she might have later on. She did, I think, later on in it. There were two songs. One, she was in the cafe. Oh, yeah, I get carried away trivia. It was, the, the song is just think. If you don't, and, and I'd sing it, <laughs> but that would not be good. But it's a, it, it starts off as like four thinks in a row. Think, 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 think about what you're trying to do to me. So that's as good as you're gonna get out of me. <laughs> And, and that's where the song goes. And that was kind of our design piece. And I see Carol's here from the College of Design, so, you know. I'm, but that necessity we had and how we're going to create our form, how we're going to identify what we're going to do. And design was a key part of that, thinking about how we're going to do things differently and thinking about that collectively. Mission-wise, and I'll be brief here because I think, you know, since it's about leadership, we, we thought a lot about what's our mission, and it's really simple. If you can imagine in our college we can get as complex as we want, saving the world, food security issues, of course, saving the environment, improving, you know, reducing invasive species and addressing those issues for our natural environment and habitat. We got a myriad of issues we work on that we could go to. But there's some really simple foundational things that I tend to focus on. There's two, two documents. The one on the right, or your left, is actually the, sign, the signed land acceptance of the land grant for the state of Minnesota. Um, it was in 1863. And whenever I talk about this, that period was only about two months after the Dakota Wars and this land that we're on here always is Dakota ancestral land. The University of Minnesota is located on Dakota ancestral land. St. Paul Camp's located there. And part of that is just by way of saying, of course, we think about our land grant, but that's always in the context of our history and our need to honor that history as we do those things. But the document I focus on is actually the Massachusetts Constitution. So how many people have read the Massachusetts Constitution? Okay, I got you. I finally, nobody raised a hand. I finally found a piece of trivia. So go take a look at it sometime. It's the oldest existing constitution. It was 1780, preceded the, 1780, the U.S. Constitution in 1787. And there's a chapter five in the Constitution. What the chapter puts into law was that the public legislature shall always fund, and they refer to the University of Cambridge, public education for the people. 
And it goes on, I, I have some of the phrasing from it, and it's, I love reading 1700 phrasing because it's always flowery. Wisdom and knowledge as well as virtue diffused generally among the body of the people being necessary for the preservation of their rights and liberties. That was the reason for having public education. And if you think about that foundational piece today, you know, here almost not quite 300 years later, but you know, a number of years later, that sort of resonance of the importance of public education for bringing, and really it's about, I've always thought of it as being about mobility. As we're moving people through class structures, we think about achievement gaps now through across, you know, so that'd be an income segment to this. Just simply building a just society is a key part of the work we do here. That that is the foundation, and it was actually the foundation of this experiment in democracy. It preceded our constitution in that context. And so it's a pretty powerful thing to think about. The reason we're fundamentally important is because we are about that lineage of public education supporting a vibrant and thriving democracy. And so that's simply our mission. It's not hard to say, it's simply that's what we do and then everything else sort of builds off of that from research perspective or of course the knowledge creation that we're using to advance that as well becomes a part of that. So this, this uh, this, this balance is really, that was kind of our challenge because I've, I've learned in, in um, this is, I'll, ju I'll just make a quick, um, well, I'll go to this one. So this, this was a challenge we had. So we had our, what we wanted to achieve. We had our mission. Um, and then we're talking about our social value, which is the public education piece. That's kind of covered. Now it's the economic value piece. And that's an area where in academics, the number of times I've been in a meeting and said, let's forget about budgets. Let's forget about economics and just do what we're going to do. And of course, that strikes me right, right through the heart. But it's that piece that, you know, our, our reality, and I've actually been known to say this in fairly significant meetings, is that with the changes in public funding, and it's not a reality, oftentimes we, we sort of want to pin it on the legislature not funding our priorities. But if you look overall at our budgets in general, you'll find infrastructure, transportation issues is huge, health and human services, and K-12 education take about 97% of the state's budget, for example. So this little sliver over there of 3% is roughly what we have for the rest of investments in public, public goods. And for the most part, I can't argue with the idea that we need to have K-12 education. It's important, certainly health and human services is a critical feature of public good in society. Infrastructure so we can support the economy and, and all the things we get, utilities, water, so on, are important pieces. So you come back to this thing of we have an obligation to figure out how are we going to manage and create this economic piece. And that's what we were confronted with. And in that, we knew that we had to, um, I'm going I'm to skip through some slides so I can get to this. We knew that we had to bring some people together in this. Um, and I, I'll just read you this pretty big word so you can see it. But as we've gone through our leadership, and this really came through, um, through LTD, this notion that you know, we often, we, we started kind of with faculty, but we knew that we wanted to have a more comprehensive piece because our staff, our students, our faculty, are all critical in driving our mission forward. It's not just faculty's role, it's not just that piece of it. And I actually discovered this, it was late 80s, oddly enough, and I won't go into the full story of where it, where it originally hit me in a sense, but this was about the time that Reagan, I know it came out of when Reagan passed the Martin Luther King Day, it wasn't actually a holiday at that point, it just passed it. And they were playing um, loops of speeches and sermons, and one of them was the eulogy from his, um, his eulogy service. And there was a clip in there from the drum major instinct because he actually, two months earlier, had given that speech and kind of foretold how he wanted to be remembered, so it became a part of his eulogy. And if you listen, I, I, I do, and everybody, I, I know people who've been through our leadership, I always talk about, you know, and actually, um, uh, Rosie, you can vouch for this too, I always bring this up as something people should read. It is a sermon, it's not a speech, and so it comes from a, a religious perspective, 
um, from his background as a reverend, of course. But he talks a lot about people's desire to be first, to be important, to move things forward. And we want leaders to be great. We want them to be important. But to do that in the right way, and then this notion that everybody can be a leader because everybody can serve. It's kind of the, the, the genesis of, it actually came a bit from a philosopher first, but Martin Luther King brought into the servant leadership models you see a lot in the leadership literature. But there's almost no power, more powerful statement than, and don't read it, listen to, go find it on YouTube, it's everywhere. I just recommend you listen to it once. And I'll be honest, I, I listen to it every once in a while, just kind of from the perspective of finding out how far off track I am, which is pretty far off track a lot of times, and you sort of set a benchmark um, like that. But it was a piece that we started to talk about with people that everybody can be a part of this because everybody can serve. We are fundamentally in public service and engaging with people and how we do that. And so really relied on that as a way, and frequently when I talk to people, of, um, of uh, bringing that together. So that was by and large, and that took probably more time than I should take, but um, that was by and large our sort of, I, I guess you'd call it the crucible that we were in to think about how we were going to create this environment where we had these challenges and, and real opportunities with you know, the grand challenges of food and agriculture and the environment questions. How are we going to meet those opportunities at the same time we're meeting some of the challenges I talked with budgets and so on. And so that's when we started to think about and work with LTD. And we've worked with them. I, I won't go much into, you know, obviously we have a lot of areas where, where you can work on things. They've, been, they've done a lot of work with us in departmental level issues. Um, so we've had departments where we feel like we need to have some connection with how do we bring uh, whether it's collegiality or just a shared vision forward. Um, one of the things about our departments that I think we, we, we elevate some of these is we have some real, you know, when I talk about those disciplinary differences, oftentimes people will coalesce around the work they do. When you have divergent disciplines, it's sometimes in the same department are quite different, and perhaps in some cases even, so I think of conservation biology, and, uh, and, and, and we don't have a department that has this together, conservation biology, and agriculture, and once you plow a native prairie, you have basically taken conservation biology in its purest form out of the equation. You know, those kinds of things. So we actually talk about, in some constructs, the college as a model for diversity, that there is this intersection in between where it's food, agriculture, and natural resources. How do we conserve our water resources, improve soil fertility and health, while we're producing the food we need? And there's an intersection there. But there's these other areas that you take in their own rights. You know, like conservation biology is something that's important that we work in, that identity is important for that. And of course, at the, at the far end, that's probably just, you know, production agriculture at its extent on the, on the other end. And how do we bridge that together? So we do a lot of work in just those, those lower areas. But as a college, to bring people more together, we started a CFANS Leads program that really, in fact, I don't, I don't know, Rosie, if you said where the genesis of that was, kind of a conversation. We were brainstorming about how do we, how do we, um, just get really, I think one of it was we had challenges of finding our next generation of department heads. And I'll talk in a little bit that leadership is kind of a discovery thing in ways. And so I'm probably seeing a little bit of my own, own thunder. But one of the things that's come out of this, you do realize that a lot of people, when I asked you to raise your hands earlier, um, even if you are in a leadership role, which people often do then because you know I'm a department head or something like that, but people often won't do that. And so we wanted to start to build an environment where people did see themselves as possibly being leaders and discovering that maybe they had that goal. In other cases, discovering maybe they shouldn't be leaders and they wanted to be leaders, you know, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon too that, that you run across. So there was some of that conversation from those about how we move that ahead. And so we started CFANS Leads, which is a, was a cohort-driven group of primarily assistant associate professors. We have about 15 to 20 in a group of each one of those. Our first one was three years ago now. We've had our second cohort that ended in December this year. Um, 
And the specific goals we had with those, I mean, we, they go through, you know, and we actually worked with CHD with a cohort that partnered with them as well to give a little bit, bit of different perspective, different college interactions, different experiences, um, different uh, goals they're working towards. But we had our own set of goals, and I already mentioned one was developing futures leaders and building, building that. And then I, I sort of joke about this, our self-serving goal was building empathy for leaders. <laughs> you know, you know, we just wanted people to feel sorry for us most of the time, which is a nice thing to have. Um, but it was really about that notion, it's not really empathy, it's that you know, oftentimes, and for those of you in leadership roles, uh, people somehow see decisions as capricious. Um, some are, <laughs> I'm joking about it, they're not usually. We were pretty careful, but you know, there's a, so if I just, I wasn't counting them this morning, but I would imagine, I, I know for a fact, in fact, because we had a Dean's Council, we made about, I probably made about 15 decisions this morning already. Some are minor things. Um, we had issues just about a budget question about do we allocate funds to this or that kind of a thing. And then we had questions about our, our compact. You know, what were gonna be our priorities in our compact, and that has implications, which is the university's request for colleges for funding and so on. What were gonna be our priorities, how we're gonna identify those, we'd already identified some of them you know, fairly significant decisions for the future of the college, and probably 15 just this morning. And so this notion of, um, you know, what's the speed of work that happens? What are the kinds of framing that goes into those decisions? Um, how do you make decisions when you know? Uh, you know, right now, for example, um, we've all been in the conversation regarding naming buildings um, and building a little bit of empathy for regents. I'll put in this, and I, there's the news article in there and so on, the conflict that's emerged out of that. But if you put yourself in the regent's shoe for a moment and take away any kind of a framing for around what, what's happening or what has happened, they're in a position where they're gonna make a decision where I assure you there's very few people, the, the entire world, everybody won't accept what that decision is one way or the other. Without going into any of the pros, cons, differences, there's going to be segments of people who just will not agree. And you hope they do the right thing. I'm not gonna weigh in on that here today about what I, my views or opinions are of that. But they have to make that decision. And, those are, and that's, a, that's probably one of the higher level ones we have facing the university today right now. Um, it's an important decision, it's a critical decision, but they have to make that, at some point, they will have to make a decision. There's no way out. And I've actually been visiting with some people about exactly that issue that we have to make those, and that's a hard thing to do. Regardless of what you might think or view or your, your perspectives, it's a hard thing for them to do. And getting people to just kind of view that can start to make things just function a lot better. That, that building that, you know, sort of the, the cultural capacity to have some understanding and, and thought about what people are doing and why they're doing it. And then, as I said, one of the things that's really good and has been great for us is building a pool of informed faculty. Um, we realize a lot of times we don't spend a lot of time, it's unfortunate, I wish I could do more of this, getting out and talk, in fact, I just had my review and that was one of the things, you don't come out and talk to faculty more. Going, Seems like I'm out there all the time, but that's my perspective, not other people's perspective. And it was a way to build more informed faculty so as we do have connections and engagement, they kind of come with some, some level of context and understanding. So for example, we formed a, we finance boot camps. Um, we started to talk about how does a budget in CFANS work? What happens when you don't ask for ICR, indirect cost recovery, in a grant where ICR is available? That means we're not able to fund your whatever when we go forward, those kinds of connections that we want our faculty doing great work and focused on that, but some of those just awareness pieces that you find sometimes aren't, aren't there in building some of those, so I'll talk some more about those later. So we went from CFANS lead, which was largely faculty, and about a year and a half ago we started a staff leads kind of a program. And we have a chief operations officer who's kind of taken on that role. And the idea behind that was kind of the same thing, um, but one of the things, we have some really phenomenal staff um, in CFANS. I mean, people that, I mean, 
you, you want to go to understand what's happening financially. You want to understand HR policies, goals, rules, limitations. You want to think about how do you get this grant submitted. Some really phenomenal people who do some great work. And for the most part, um, this hierarchical thing, we actually have a dean's dialogue, we talk about different aspects, and the hierarchy of academics is huge, right? If you think about our entire, especially someone who's been in academia their whole life, you went from freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, grad student, you became an assistant professor, associate professor, professor, and you move through the rank. It is, a, it is hierarchical as a military, and we just don't have the, the shoulder you know, stripes to show it. And we oftentimes, when we get caught up in the academic side of this, forget that this university and its success depends as much as anything of having highly qualified, highly engaged, very, very uh, productive staff. And so we wanted to bring them into a conversation about, and, and we're sort of flat you know, as an organization. There's not a lot of places to go in that hierarchy. So bringing cross-functionality, understanding across our various you know, programmatic areas and functional areas, and, and trying to build that. And the bigger piece that we're, we were just talking about back in January and already, Rosie, when we're ready to start to move forward, we're still working towards it, is to have a faculty and staff co-group and the idea of building across from departmental to collegiate understanding, which is another one of those areas that we don't have enough communication in. So we've kind of structured this in a network of interactions where we start to get a lot of cross understanding of what's happening. And we're very hopeful that um, um, that's gonna, gonna lead us um, lead us forward. So I only have a, I, I want to have some possible time for questions. I'm going to kind of, so that's where we came to. And I'd like to say I had some great crescendo for what we've accomplished. And, you know, but I, I do view this and I'll, I'll talk about some of our learnings in a bit um, as we, as we kind of took this leap. Um, but some of the early outcomes, for example, uh, we had three faculty, junior faculty who came through our first CFAN lead cohort. who started a program with some of our senior faculty called Artemisia. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a women in science program in CFANS. And it's a cohort who came together and has a mentorship circles where faculty come together and, and mentor junior faculty into their faculty roles as well as staff are part of this. Grad students are a big part of it. And we have a seminar series that goes along with that. And that emerged out of people who had sort of taken on some of this leadership role, something I think has really been positive uh, across the college. I mentioned the Dean's Dialogues. Um, that came out of some of our early planning in this and recognizing that we don't have enough hard conversation across campus. So about every other month or so, we get together, um, and it's primarily staff and faculty at this point. We get about 60 to 80, depending on it, and have discussions about hard topics. We have, for example, we had one about how does religion come into the workplace? Um, think about inter inter um, uh, interactions there. We've had ones on hidden disabilities, implicit bias, and they've over time grown, and so what's happening is ideally we're raising the overall competency of people to recognize and inclusive views of things and try to build some of that. And that came out of some of the things that we were talking, because. When you start to ask people in these, these programs and the people that go through them, we ask them real, Rosie and crew ask real life questions of, that we address every day, and you start to get answers back of what you can do. So it's been phenomenal for, for raising our thinking. And we've actually deployed these groups in working now on work, sort of work-related projects. Once you've sort of had the finance training and HR and kind of get some of that perspective, and I'll just hit these, we've, we have an online courses community of practice where we have people working together within this group that now are working towards those. A faculty workload uh, that's drawing to the fact, think about what is our faculty workload expectations around, around the college as we, we face some of these challenges. Um, you know, budget planning, the boot camps I talked about, and we're actually thinking about doing one of, which sounds odd, but understanding organizational structures of a university. Um, and we've talked with HR about this a little bit, because surprisingly, I've discovered that we hire people sometimes out there in in CFAN's universe, 
and nobody knows how they got hired. Like they show up in payroll and you're going, wait a minute, how did this hiring happen? And somebody decided they made a verbal offer to someone, they got it to the payroll person, wait a minute, there are policies here. And it sounds odd to say that, but we hire, just to give you some sense of this, because of our ROCs, we'll have a hiring of about 150 to 200 people coming through the spring because of field work. So we just get a large, big chunk of hiring going on. And, but the issue is people go, oh, you mean we have to go through HR practices to hire? You know, it, well, yeah, there's, it doesn't happen often, but it's what I said, you know, and when we typically talk to people, it's, you know, we didn't really, it's not my job to look at what the hiring policy university are, but start to build some of those things that I think are gonna be helpful. So I'll just wrap up with, with learnings on this then. Um, you know, things I think we've learned and, and then close this off. One, um, as I said, I already left this one, leadership is a discovery. You know, people discover they're gonna be leaders. And I think, you know, I was really fortunate when I started out, I happened to get into an early leader, just a small kind of a cohort of leadership. It wasn't broad, right? You realize that there's probably about five people um, in the college at that time who'd had that experience. I, I managed to get into the academic leaders program, which is a CIC, now the Big Ten academic leadership program. And again, that was a cohort of about seven people from across the university in a given year. And so as part of his thinking was, the broader you cast that net, the more opportunity you have for people to think about what are their roles and goals in leadership, the greater chance you're gonna have people discover that, hey, this is interesting. I can have a real impact in the work I do, and I might be good at it. And those are the people we need coming into education, thinking about those next steps. So it was really kind of just broadening out that experience. And so now we've had, over these two years, we've had 40, about roughly 35 to 40 faculty who've been through a full year, year and a half of leadership training. That starts to have a cultural impact across the college. You can start to see that happening. And so that discovery, I think, has really been important. This empathy building, that's a piece that, um, you know, we, we live in a critical, it's pretty with faculty, it's a, we live by critique and, and, you know, when we're reviewing papers and grants and those things. But this idea that we are making decisions, that people have different values, different viewpoints, we need to take those into account just kind of creating a more inclusive way that we do that work. I've already kind of talked about, you can never communicate um, too much on anything and you can never, enough, never communicate enough on everything. It's just one of those things that you try to keep that communication going. Um, it just takes some stamina. And in my, my earlier, my other slides I had, a, a, at this point I had a Sherpa in there um, as a symbol of, you know, it's one of those things too that we're, a, it takes a while to figure this out. We are a long, we're like a, a, a a redwood tree as a university, right? We are a long-lived span. We're about a 30-year transition cycle on things when you really think about it from, you know, when you think about faculty and coming through and so on and the time frames of building, we're just a, a, a lot of fixed things in this. And so I view this as something we're doing, we've always talked about it as a long-run kind of a prospect um, that a lot of this work is gonna pay off five and 10 years from now. You know, we won't have enough size of a cohort, enough depth in it but we really look at it as something that, that sort of staying in it for the long haul, which we're doing as a commitment. And I really think a lot about that issue of how do we, there's, there's an inertia here in, in our culture that how do we start to think like a, and I've actually done a lot of literature, but I haven't found an answer, which is kind of surprising. Somebody should write a book about this. How do you take a, a 150-year-old institution and get it to think like a startup? You know, how do we get people to see anew what it is we have opportunities to do, whether it's online, is, we see some of that creep in with online teaching and those kinds of things. But how do we really think about that? Because the world out there is moving pretty fast now. And that's the thing that I think we're starting to get people thinking more that way. So with that, um, I do appreciate the time. I hope um, you gleaned something out of this. That was more our journey explanation than 
I wish I had an answer, um, but it's been a pretty fun um, and I think uh, rewarding um, activity for our, for our faculty and us as well. So thank you very much. So thank you very much, uh, Dean Bohr. That was excellent and a nice introduction for us to move into our panel conversation. Um, so what I'd like to do right now is uh, invite the panelists to come up and join us on the stage. And we will start with Abimbola Asoha, who is the Associate Dean for Research, Creative Scholarship, and Engagement in the College of Design. So welcome, Abby. Uh, next, invite Jim Burdeen, Department Head in Plant Pathology in the College of Food, Agricultural, and Natural Resource Sciences to join us up here, Thank you, Jim. Followed by Wendy Lumen, the Cooperative Chair in Child and Family Health in the School of Nursing. Hello. And last of all, but not least, or almost last, uh, Diane Newmark-Steiner, who is the Division Head in Epidemiology and Community Health in the School of Public Health. And now, last but not least, uh, Brandon Sullivan, the Senior Director in Leadership and Talent Development Brandon is an organizational psychologist and has worked in several organizations where he is focused on leadership development, and he also teaches at the Carlson School of Management. He will be providing perspective today during the panel discussion and will provide insight later on what we have learned through our research into academic leadership here at the university. So thank you again for being here to share your leadership journeys and your insights and experiences in your leadership in your academic unit. So let's welcome the panel. So we are going to start the panel today by inviting our panelists to uh, take just a minute or so to share a little bit about their academic journey to date. So we're going to start with you, Dr. Abambola. Okay. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, well, I started my career in Oklahoma in 1997 as an assistant professor in interior design. And, um, you know, I became the... Um, director of the interior design division by default because I was, you know, the, the only tenure track faculty in the program and the program had to go through accreditation. And, you know, I became the director then. And I actually directed the program for five years. And, um, you know, the positives I took away from that position well, um, I remember in 2010 when the program got um, became the top four program in interior design by design intelligence, and all the you know the parents, the students, and the staff and the stakeholders were also excited. You know that intrinsic motivation was something very positive for me. That you know it got me so excited, and I was really happy about the impact on the community. And I came to um, University of Minnesota in 2011. And, um, you know, I directed the program in here in Minnesota from 2015 to 2018. And the interesting thing again was, you know, like in 2016, um, we were also you, a top top 20 program in the US by design intelligence. Again, students and faculty and parents and community stakeholders and people were so excited about that. You know, so, you know, those are the things that keep me, you know, excited to see the impact of what, you know, 
impact of what some of the leadership and the work we do can have on the community and on the students and on how intrinsically motivated people are. Today, I'm the Associate Dean for Research, Creative Scholarship and Engagement in College of Design. It's a very long title. I started that position in June of 2018. And my work there is to support the college's research, creative scholarship and engagement and make the work of the faculty visible and also identify opportunities and networks of support across the university to develop, mentor, and support the faculty, and also promote all you know, the types of research and the initiatives we do, and also you know, showcase how the work of the faculty in design are impacting the community. And you know, one thing that has really helped me in this role, because I wouldn't have felt um, empowered to even be an associate dean if I hadn't gone through the LEADS program. I did the LEADS program like maybe two and a half years ago. And, you know, I learned so much about the university and the uh, University of Minnesota and the system-wide campuses. And I was also fortunate. You know, the interesting thing was, you know, um, Catherine French, I don't know if she's in the audience. I think she's a faculty in civil engineering. She called me up and said, oh, your name came up for you to contest in the faculty senate. I reluctantly agreed. I knew I wouldn't win because, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not popular on campus, so I knew I wouldn't win. So I thought who I was going against will win, and lo and behold, she won. But she left the university, and because she left, I was called on to serve one year term, you know, to finish up her term. And I learned so much, you know, being on that. So that's been my, you know, my story, kind of, you know. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Great. Dr. Bertine. So uh, thank you very much, Rosie, and thanks um, to you and your colleagues for, for putting this on. Um, so my, my, my uh, entree, I guess, into leadership in the university is a, a little bit different. I, I've been at the university since 2002, and I think I spent the first two-thirds of my time here actively avoiding the college offices and anything that, that really smelled of leadership at all. Um, I, I think I really didn't see myself in that role until I reached a point where um, I uh, was becoming full professor and was sort of at this stage in my, my life where uh, I was having a, um, a bit of a crisis about what came next and really thinking about impact and, and Abby, what you said about impact and wanting to impact the, um, the, the research, the, the education that goes on at the university uh, really was something that spoke to me. And I, I work in uh, the Department of Plant Pathology, have absolutely fantastic colleagues, and you can, you can ask me privately, I will say that, um, because it absolutely is true. And, and so the, the history, the, the uh, contemporary research, the extension work, the, the students that we have are really phenomenal. And um, I was really inspired by the department head that came before me, who was our very first female department head, and really had transformative effects on the culture. So I, I felt that our department was really going on the right trajectory. Um, and when she stepped down and I was just at the stage of becoming a full professor and sort of asking what the rest of my career is going to be about, I um, at first reluctantly stepped into the role um, after colleagues encouraged me to do so and have found that I've really, really loved it. It's been, um, I've learned a lot and, and, and Rosie and your colleagues uh, have helped a great deal in that regard, but it's been extremely rewarding, largely because of the impact that you can have on, on the mission of the university. Thank you. Dr. Lumen. 
Um, I, I resonated with um, some of the terms I've heard, in, including um, reluctant, <laughs> um, empathy, communication, and um, Dean Burr's talking about um, the role of a Sherpa. Um, I also was um, reluctant in this role. I uh, came to the university in 2003 and um, mostly focused on my own role on the tenure track. And three years ago, I was asked if I would consider stepping into the cooperative unit chair role, and our cooperative units are like divisions or departments. Um, and before that, I hadn't considered leadership at all. Um, so one of the things I've learned in the role is that leadership isn't what I thought it would be. I thought leadership was about um, helping people follow the rules and doing the right thing and having a lot of answers. And really, it's about helping other people develop, helping the organization develop, and doing a lot of listening. Um, I also have learned about myself that, well, I've already known that I'm a person of few words. I have a lot of words inside, but they don't always come out. And this, this role has really um, helped me learn to take what's inside and, and communicate, because what people really need from leaders is um, to know what we're thinking and doing and believing. So I'll um, hopefully have a chance to talk a little more about what we've been doing in our school um, to communicate from a leadership perspective um, to help faculty in their development. Thank you, Dr. Steiner. Hi, so um, I love the question before who's the leader because pretty much everyone raised their hand and they feel like you know, we're all on this path toward leadership from the time that we're children and I don't know, we lead teams, we lead groups as researchers, we lead research teams. So um, my, my, I've been doing that, I guess, you know, in bits and pieces my whole life, but about four years ago, I was at a um, an eating disorders conference at the Hotel, Hotel de Coronado. I don't know if anyone's been there outside of San Diego, and I thought it was going to be a nice, relaxing conference with a little bit of beach time, and then my dean called and asked me if I would step into the role of interim division head, and it just kind of flipped the whole, the whole, um, the whole conference time, and I decided to do it... Um, and then I decided to apply for the for the you know the full time position. And so I've been doing this for a little over four years, and um, you know I guess the the question that I ask myself probably most days is: Am I able to have more impact as a faculty member or as a leader? And some days the answer goes this way, and some days it goes this way. And um, when it stops going in, 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 you know, I mean, I do think that as, as a leader of a large department, I have the, the ability to help other people develop and kind of think in an organizational way of how we provide a structure in which people can flourish and, and do their best work. It's, it's a different way of thinking than as an individual faculty member. I should say just a, a word or two about our division. I'm in the School of Public Health. And we have four divisions, which are like departments. And I lead um, epidemiology and community health. So we have about 50 faculty, about 300, 400 staff, and an equal number of students. So it's a very, very large division. Um, and like you, it's really, we're, we're fortunate to have very, very highly motivated faculty and staff. Doesn't mean that there are never issues. There are lots of issues. But, but that's really what's, what's kept me in the role. You have anything, Brandon? Yeah. <clears throat> so 
you know, in my role as an organizational psychologist, I've done a lot of leadership development work in lots of different types of organizations. And I've been here at the university now about actually more than six years, gone really fast. Um, and this is by far the most exciting work I've ever done. I love getting to work with faculty and staff here. One of the things that really stood out for me as I started getting into the leadership development work here at the university is, um, you know, in a lot of other organizations, you have people falling all over themselves to compete for leadership roles. And they're assertive, they're ambitious, they, you know, for leadership specifically. Um, not the case here at the university. Um, you know, a lot of times we have people who, you know, we have to kind of nudge them to, to take leadership roles, and um, sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. But it's a very different kind of environment when we think about leadership development. And so, you know, one of the things that, that really, you know, we, I think we, we need here and we're working on and, you know, look, working with colleges on is, you know, help for academic leaders to sort of discern, do I want to be a leader? What are the pluses, the minuses? What is it? you know, take to be successful, the kind of the trade-offs for your own research. If you, you know, take on a, a leadership role, there are costs there in some ways. Um, and then also once you've discerned, yes, I'd like to be a leader and getting into a leadership role, it's very difficult uh, here at the university <laughs> to be a leader uh, in some ways compared to a lot of other types of organizations. The outcomes are less clear. You have a lot of stakeholders that are very outspoken and sometimes want very opposing kinds of things, um, to just name a couple. Um, and so how do we support leaders then? Uh, once you've decided to take on a leadership role, it can be very difficult, very stressful. You may find you're not quite prepared in terms of skills, knowledge, and abilities. Um, and so you know, that's really kind of what we've been focusing on is how can we create some of that foundation uh, to help leaders, support leaders in their, their skill development and in being successful in dealing with some of the challenges. So um, I'm, I'm personally not an academic leader, so I'm not sharing my own leadership story. Um, but those are some of the things that you know I would say. You know, if you're especially comparing the university to other types of organizations, some of the things that really stand out. Thank you all for sharing your perspectives on things. So my first question um, for you is to think about what are the biggest challenges you have faced as a leader, and how did you overcome them? Assuming you did, <laughs> anyone can start. I can start. So, um, so I think there are challenges at both the organizational level and the personal level. Um, so, at maybe I'll start at the personal level. At the personal level, you know, as a faculty member, we have lots of we have lots of hard things in our work, but we have a lot of freedom. And we really have the opportunity to take time and engage in intellectual thought and kind of organize our schedules and think about things. And in a leadership role, our days look very different. Many, many more meetings, um, being at the, I mean, you really need to be there to serve other people. So the structure is very different. And I found myself by the weekend so tired <laughs> and just kind of wanting to come and be by myself, you know, so coming from being part of a group of faculty and having those as my peers to being the supervisor and then also in my free time wanting to have more time by myself. That, was, that, that has been um, a challenge for me. And then also just kind of figuring out how to balance my time so I can keep doing my research and doing my administrative role. Um, at an organizational level, um, I would say that the 
the big struggle for for uh, well, one big struggle has been um, balancing the need to run a department that is financially solvent with running a department that is also intellectually stimulating and really serving the public. We're a school of public health. We need to go out and meet the needs of most our most vulnerable populations. That's what we're committed to doing. That's what our faculty and staff are committed to doing. And we need to do that in a way that's also financially solvent for us. So if things work correctly, it shouldn't be a problem. It should actually merge beautifully together, but it doesn't always happen. So creating that culture is, is um, something that's on my mind. To add to what um, Diana said, you know, I also, you know, I'm from the College of Design and, you know, we have limited resources too. We don't have a pot of money. So we have to be creative and um, about programs and opportunities. So we're trying to encourage collaboration among the faculty. You know, this idea, this gestalt principle that we think about in design, that we're, we are stronger together as a whole than, you know, we're the sum of our parts. So basically, you know, challenging times, we're trying to find um, multiple ways and multiple opportunities. You know, like designers, whenever we solve problems, we have multiple ideas. So we're trying to apply some of those multiple options. You know, there isn't one um, solution to a problem. So we're trying to um, engage and bring people together, trying to solve problems um, by putting together interdisciplinary teams and ways like that. But, you know, the problems we have are really, um, we don't have a huge pot of money. So we're trying to find ways to get people to work together more so we can solve our problems together and, you know, um, support each other. I'll, I'll build on that a little bit because I'm hearing things that really resonate to me. Um, the biggest problems are personnel and money, and I'd say in that order. <laughs> um, but but the, um, the solutions are, are probably pretty diverse and, and, and tapping into resources at the university, knowing who to go to has, has been a, a bit of a challenge. But I, I think for me personally, the biggest uh, challenge has been sort of psychological and recognizing that some of these problems can't be solved or that I can't solve them. I don't have the power. I don't have the resources to actually solve those things. And that's, that, that's something I, I think as a leader I've been slow to sort of um, embrace and, and recognize and sort of cut myself slack when things don't turn out the way I really want them to. I think as a leader it's too easy to carry the weight of the world and want everything perfect for everyone in the department, in, in, in my case, and um, that always does, it doesn't always work out that way. I think what I agree, one of the challenges for me has been um, psychological and thinking of um, myself and my identity as a leader. And when I stepped into the role, I believed it was about um, how the person before me in that role was was enacting that role, and, I, and I've needed to learn um, to be in this role as an individual, and what my identity as a leader is a lot about what I bring as a person. And so it looks a little different from the, the person who was in this role before me, and it might look different from the other leaders who are in similar roles because I, I bring who I am to that. Um, and I think that's a positive, I hope that's positive. <laughs> Um, and I, I also agree that um, it's a challenge to realize that there's really no right answer or one answer is to being comfortable, be 
be comfortable with multiple perspectives and multiple realities. Um, as a leader, that's difficult, but it helps to be comfortable with that. Most of you have touched on some um, actions that you've taken to support your own leadership and career development uh, for yourself and also thinking about the faculty in your unit. And I'm wondering if you can uh, say a little bit more about the impact of, of moving people forward in their careers. I, I think that's really cool. <laughs> that's one of the, the great joys, I think, of being in a leadership position um, to, to really understand what, what uh, a, a research staff scientist wants, how she or he wants to, to, to um, be seen as a scientist in, in his or her own right, how a faculty member wants to move in a new research direction, wants to establish a new international collaboration, and sort of being at a higher level and seeing the dots and helping people connect that, that's, that's one of the great joys, actually. So I, I spend a lot of time doing that, and I think that translates into a, a happy, more engaged um, department. Anyone else? Well, I can say that um, it's the department chair's dream to have engaged faculty and staff who want to take on leadership roles, whatever they are, and it can be something small or it can be something large. So really tapping into that. Um, so something we did right at the beginning was we asked faculty what they wanted, what, what they wanted to see. We did a large needs assessment. And, and then they're engaged from the beginning in the process. I mean, not everyone is engaged in everything, and not everyone is even engaged. But if you can get the majority of your faculty to take on some type of leadership role and your staff to take on some type of leadership role um, in whatever area they're working on or in an area that interests them, things just move forward so much better because there's so much hidden, hidden knowledge. And we only know a little bit. So when, when you just have an environment where people are kind of asked to give their opinions and then asked to step forward. I just think that that can make such, such a difference. And one of the things that that makes me think of is uh, how leading uh, in an academic department or in a college really requires influencing without authority, right? So technically you have authority, people report to you in the system, right, on paper, but that's not how it typically works, right? That's not the culture, that's not the expectation um, in an academic department. And that's really different uh, from uh, like a corporate style leadership role. I mean, you still, if you're a good leader in the private sector or, you know, where it's more of a hierarchical uh, kind of a situation, you, you know, you still want to engage people and listen and get input. But it's, it is really, um, I think, a more challenging task uh, in many academic departments and colleges to, to lead uh, when you can't, at the end of the day, often put your foot down on something. Right? I mean, you, you can, but that doesn't usually work very well, and you don't have a lot of ways to do that. So it really relies on, you know, how do we, um, as a leader, uh, get people bought into what we're trying to do and get their input incorporated and kind of keep uh, enough people on board as we're going through, you know, the, the work that we're doing and engage in our common goals um, that we'll get it done and we'll work together. And when we started uh, with the College Leads Program, one of the things that we realized right away is that 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 kind of leadership development is most effective, in this case, at the college level, um, because it's really not leadership development for leadership development's sake. It's not just you becoming a better leader, but it's how can we collectively um, engage a college in a set of common priorities uh, to move forward. 
And that seems to be uh, kind of a, a really uh, a different thing, a different model maybe than a lot of other approaches to leadership development, but really recognizing that um, it's really influencing without authority. It's how do we get people engaged, not force them to do something. I guess just building on that, so we have also, um, like at, at CFANS in the School of Public Health, we've also done the LEADS program, and I believe we've had two cohorts of staff and one co cohort of faculty go through. Um, so that's kind of given people some skills and the, the recognition that they were chosen to be in that. Um, and also we worked with LTD in, in our own division in doing a needs assessment and getting faculty together. And it was really, I think, really helpful. I mean, okay, I'm not going to say that everyone was so excited to come. You know, they're like, oh, half a day. Oh, we got to drive all the way over to East Bank from West Bank. But once, <laughs> once they were there, people were very engaged. And we developed a plan, and there, it, it came from them. So I think it was really worth the effort. And, and Jen and Chelsea did, and the rest of the team, you guys did a great job with that. So we have these resources. We pay for them. We might as well use them. So, yeah. Thanks. So next question, how do you celebrate and sustain what is going well in your academic unit? And maybe the first question is, do you? You know, um, in the College of Design, we have very good communication staff. So, you know, um, we try to celebrate the news on, you know, our blogs, uh, Twitter, Facebook, the website, and you know, it gets people intrinsically motivated and students, are, you know, faculty, students and staff are excited as well. I mean, I think it's important to celebrate those wins and to also showcase how, you know, we're making a change or we're impacting communities because, you know, the University of Minnesota, you know, we've heard a lot about our land grant mission. You know, we do a lot of work with communities that benefit the society. So it's important that we, you know, most times, you know, like a faculty, we really appreciate publishing our work in a peer review journal. And, you know, but in the end, how many people are in the community are going to pick up that journal and read about the impacts we made that way if we don't celebrate it on the you know, the popular press where people can really hear about it. So I think it's really, really important. And we try to do that a lot. And we have excellent staff, you know, communication staff in the College of Design who help us spread the word out to, you know, on our website and the social media. So that's the way by which we do that. Uh, faculty are often reluctant, I think, to lift themselves up. Some people are good at that, but many of us aren't. And so one of the things that we did in our unit was um, pair people up at random and ask them to get to know each other and then um, lift that person up in a meeting. Um, so they went out for coffee and learned about each other, and then each person got to um, lift up the other person uh, based on what they'd learned. And that went really well because nobody had to um, celebrate themselves, but they could celebrate their neighbor. I think it also sets a culture of, of um, remembering to recognize other people for what, what all the good stuff that's going on. I love that idea. <laughs> I'm going to take it. Um, so it's true, you know, our faculty aren't, they're, for the most part, people are very non-pretentious and see that as a value. So when we ask them to go out and talk in the media, we have to frame it not as promoting themselves, but as promoting their work. Um, so 
I, I think it's hard. I mean, I think it's really easy to focus on what's what's not going well. And um, so we've done a few things. Um, one is we, you know, we, we we run our unit primarily through grant research support and also through teaching. Um, so we, we put up a big whiteboard um, and we write grants that are submitted and who wrote them and the name of the grant. And the idea is to let people know what people are working on, to let people know who's working together, and also to give credit for the grant submission and not only for the outcome. And that's, it's interesting. So a lot of people like it. They'll walk by the board and they'll see who's doing things. They'll say, oh, I want to be on the board. And then we have some people who don't like it because it sets up a, a kind of a, um, oh, I feel bad about myself if I don't have a grant up there. So then we have to recognize other things also. And some things fall through the cracks. So we try to do things around grants, getting grants, um, submitting grants. We have teachers who, who do well. We recognize them. Across the school, um, we have these SPAT awards. So if uh, a staff person is doing well, you can just write a very brief paragraph on them and they get a $50 um, gift certificate, and they get recognition. That, that, that didn't come from our department. It came from across the school, but that's been very nice. So a lot of little things like that. Um, and then just trying to have a culture where people feel, feel valued. I think that's very important. I, I think there's always room to grow. Um, also, as a leader, I think that, that something I think about a lot is... Um, do we try to work with people to, to um, build on their strengths or improve their weaknesses? And I think the literature says work on people's strengths, but you know, faculty are supposed to be successful in teaching research service, and not everyone is totally equal in all of those areas, right? Different people have different strengths. So then where do we put the focus? And, you know, and I think that's, I'm sure you, you struggle with that also. Um, and the same with areas within our department. We have some areas that are very strong, and we have some that need more support. So it's always that choice. Well, do we work on strengthening the strong areas or strengthening the weaker areas? So I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking, but uh, those are things that I think about. Before we move on to asking for questions from the audience, um, I'm curious what you would say are... Um, ideas or wisdom that you would want to share with a faculty person who was thinking about an academic leadership role. A number of you said that wasn't something you really aspired to. So what, what words of wisdom would you have to share with somebody thinking about it? I, I, I guess um, you know, having an honest conversation about why you want to do it, um, what the motivation is. If it's the money and the fame, you're probably um, going down the wrong path. <laughs> But, um, you know, if you really are focused on impact, I, at least in my experience, I think that's the right, the right attitude. Um, we've heard the word service today, and I absolutely think of my role as, as a servant, um, focused on the mission of the department. Uh, I make sure our administrative staff um, really feels that same way. We have a fantastic team, um, and we see our job as making sure the wheels um, just sort of stay on the bus. Um, and, and so I, I, I think having that, the, the right um, rationale for getting or wanting to get into this is, is really critical. But then also understanding the sacrifices, the personal sacrifices, the talked a little bit about the psychological toll, um, you know, the impact on research. And this has been, I, I've been in this role almost six years. I, I still love my research. 
Um, I, I look at it though, and it's a constant frustration because it's not moving where I want it to go. It's not moving as quickly as I want. And I feel like I'm at a point where I need to decide, um, you know, there's a fork in the road up there. Um, and and I, I think each of us has to make that decision. So really understanding what, what you're sacrificing to get into these roles and, and asking yourself why. Um, I mean, they're fantastic. They're fantastic roles. The benefits are huge. Um, but, but, but it is a very different lifestyle, I think. I remember um, clearly asking when I was a doctoral student, asking my mentor why she was a division head. Um, why would you do this? <laughs> and she said she, she like you, saw it as service, that we all um, have a responsibility at some point in our careers and our professional lives to step into leadership roles and then step back. Um, and that it was her time. And, and it reframed leadership for me and thinking about um, people don't always do it because they aspire to be in control. It's, it's often because there's um, a time for us to step in and a time for us to step out. I do think if we ask more faculty, um, have you ever thought of um, moving into leadership? If they haven't, it might just start them thinking about um, envisioning that and that can be helpful for them to we have, um, as Dr. Boer said, some empathy for the people who are in leadership roles that we're not here necessarily because we want power and control, that um, it's hard work and it's service for us. Some people want power and control. <laughs> I have to acknowledge that. And, you know, to add to that as well, you know, um, Dean Burr said that a lot too, that leadership is discovery. You know, you discover a lot along the way. And um, uh, um, some other wisdom, words of, I mean, words of wisdom to share. You know, I feel like I'm not wise enough in this position yet. But, you know, like um, collaboration is very, very important, you know, and then um, empathy and um, being inclusive. And, you know, it's a lifelong learning process. You know, don't feel like you have to have all the answers. You can learn, you know, I mean, those are some things I would like to add to what my colleagues have said, you know. So in the work that, that I do and that my team does, we work with lots of different academic departments. And I can say definitively that um, the quality of leadership at the department level makes a huge difference uh, in the experience of faculty and staff uh, within that department. And so, you know, I would just sort of say, you know, we need good leaders. <laughs> and, um, you know, in, in a lot of organizations, the people who want the leadership roles are not the people you want in those roles because they're looking uh, for money and power. That's not the case uh, here at the university. Um, so I think, you know, for, for faculty um, who maybe have the potential to be great leaders and to really, you know, have a positive impact on their department and help solve some of the big challenges facing you know, the university, higher education, um, that only academic leaders uh, can really you know, solve and address. Um, obviously, you know, other leaders play a big role too, but there are some that really need strong academic leadership. Um, you know, we, we wanna remove those barriers for people uh, who would be great academic leaders to, to do that. And I would just sort of put that out there as, as someone who sees this great need for, for uh, that kind of leadership. And so the more we can do to talk about it and support it and help people discern, you know, whether that's for them uh, is really good. But it, it has a huge impact. And I, I personally think a lot of um, department chairs, department heads underestimate how important they are in setting the tone and the culture and the experience within their department. That really is a big high impact role. 
Well, let's turn the focus just for a few minutes on what questions we have from the audience. Um, this is your chance, so please wait, wait for a microphone to uh, reach you. Marissa and Terry have the mics so that we can all hear you and that you will be appropriately recorded on our um, recording. So if you could, when, you, when we uh, get to you, if you could introduce yourself and direct your, your question to the entire panel or an individual panel member, that would be great. Sorry, um, I'm Steve Engel from the psychology department and I've heard a lot about impact, uh, making an impact. And I just wonder if you have any tricks for how to make a positive impact when so much of administration's job seems to be dealing with crisis, maintaining the status quo, and just, you know, most of your time, I worry, I guess, is being sucked up with kind of just maintenance um, as opposed to being able to put forward new initiatives. And if, are there any tricks to, to getting those to happen? I don't necessarily have a trick, but um, maybe an example. On the engagement survey, um, one thing that surprised me that uh, an area of opportunity for our unit was that um, faculty rated fairly low on saying, uh, my department offers effective mentoring and coaching to support my development. And from my perspective, I was meeting with um, faculty individually, and we have a, a really good mentoring plan. Um, so I saw faculty who want mentoring and faculty who want to mentor, lots of good work happening and a mentoring program, but they didn't seem to think it was happening. And so I just, um, I started meeting with faculty in small groups. I'd pick a um, junior faculty, a mid-career, and a senior faculty, someone from clinical track, someone from tenure track, and bring them to lunch and talk about mentoring so that they could hear the stories of one another. Um, and that has been, I think, a really big win because they, they realized that the potential is there in the school, that there's a lot of support that just they needed a little bit of a nudge. So I think we have a, a, a view of what's going on in the school that individual faculty don't necessarily have. And so we can, we can kind of nudge it in a, in a positive direction. So I think that's a great question. Um, and if my role only gets to be that, then I will stop doing it. I mean, I think it's important to to not be a reactive leader. And we see that. Sometimes it's like crisis, crisis, crisis. So, um, and there are different things that happen. There are issues that happen. You know, it's those, those quadrants, important and urgent, and you're supposed to be most of the time in the important, not urgent, um, but we get pulled into the urgent. So I think having a plan, a, a, a vision for what's really, really important and sticking with that and sticking with it until, you know, you're just so persistent and, and having... So that's something that's always moving forward. And then there are the things that kind of happen along the way. And they may slow you down, but you still have that kind of vision where you want to get to. Um, and staying as calm as possible. I do a lot of yoga, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so I think that's really important. I think Diane's got it exactly right. The, your, your question gets to the heart of, of these positions. And I, I think of it really as um, uh, having two components. There's the administrative part and there's the strategic part. And I get really, really jazzed about the strategic part. Um, the administrative part, not so much. I, I see it as really important, of course. Um, and and I, I always sort of tell myself, as long as the good days outweigh the bad days, I'll, I'll sort of stay in this area. I think um, having a really engaged uh, administrative staff, a support staff, a staff that you can rely on and that works really well with you is critical. 
And I've, I've seen sort of both extremes of, of that. Um, and my, my personal productivity went through the roof when I actually had a staff that I, I, I jived with. They're absolutely the most important part of any leadership um, role, I think, and, and, and so I really take care of those, those folks as much as I can. And in turn, a lot of the administrative part um, falls to them, and they're really gifted at that, and, and it uh, gives me more time to focus on the strategic piece, which is what I personally think I'm, I'm better at. You know, to add to that, you know, I'll give an example. You know, like in the College of Design, we don't have a grants coordinator. But, you know, this um, University of Minnesota is such a big institution, and there are opportunities to find support across the university. For example, you know, we've been having, like, webinars. We had Louis Burke, who's like the, um, you know, Louis Burke is the representative of the university in Washington, D.C., they actually did a seminar for us, a webinar to, you know, share with the faculty the different um, federal agencies. And, you know, um, they actually related that um, webinar to the College of Design. And, um, I mean, it was a really um, phenomenal webinar because they showed us the different um, opportunities that we as um, design faculty could go and apply for funding, for federal funding. We did the same thing with um, Corporate Foundation. In McNamara, I discovered that as well. You know, there's a monthly foundation list that comes out, $50,000 and above. They will help you with the proposal. So I think faculty have been feeling empowered to get a lot of that information. We revamped our website. We have like a research resources website. And, you know, we have wonderful staff who, you know, um, the assistant to the um, dean in um, College of Design, I, I feel like even once I send her an email, 30 seconds later, it shows up. She's so phenomenal, I, um, and it's so valuable, you know, so things like that. And then to um, give another example, you know, sometimes you might think like a small, I remember a small project that we did in a, in a second-year interior design studio, um, we collaborated in the end with um, extensions, and it's amazing to see how much, you know, just a small calming room in a pre-K through fifth grade um, level school in St. Paul could impact the community so much, you know. And as designers, you know, we are constantly solving um, societal problems. You know, we can showcase the importance of design to community. So, you know, those are examples that I could give. And, you know, it, it, it could always be, a, it, it, it doesn't have to be something massive. It could be something small and you'd be amazed the kinds of spin-offs you get from just that one calming room. You know, we've talked to OTC and the community in um, St. Paul. I mean, we're all over their website. The other thing is we didn't even have to um, talk about it. You know, I didn't have so much time to talk about it a lot. But, you know, people have come to us because they saw it on the website. And the students who even did the um, teacher sanctuary got to be on Channel 4 News. So, you know, things like that. You know, sometimes one small project can have a domino effect and lead to so many other opportunities. One point. Um, if you find as a leader that you're spending a lot of your time essentially on fire drills and you're not able 
to get to the, the more strategic kinds of issues, the reason why you're probably a leader is more of the strategic uh, kinds of things. Often what that means is that, that there's something going on that's causing a lot of those fire drills. Because when you look within a department or a team or you know, a college or a unit, you, you usually see themes. It's the same kinds of fire drills popping up over and over again. It's not random. Uh, typically. And so what you really want to do then is stop and, and kind of do a, a analysis of what's going on here. Why does this same issue keep coming up that's distracting us from moving forward with the strategic work? And one theme that often comes up that's very common um, is there are conflicts or um, difficult conversations that are being avoided. Right, so maybe there's a person in the department who is, you know, causing a lot of conflict, and that's not being addressed in any way. Right, so that's going to start cropping up fire drills all over the place. And if you're the department head, you're probably, if you don't address that issue at its root cause, you're going to be dealing with all the colleagues of that person who are having problems. And so that's just, you know, there's other reasons why you might struggle to, to focus on the strategic stuff, but that's a common one is, you know, kind of that conflict avoidance or there's, you know, maybe not stopping to take the time to do, you know, what's the root cause of this and then how can we address that? Okay, we have time for one more question. My name is Frances Holmans. I'm in the Department of Applied Economics, and I have a, just a super simple question for Wendy. I'm intrigued by your idea of peering people up. So are these people who did not know each other? How often do you do this? How often are they reported? I just want some more operational details on this great idea. Are you referring to the when people um, lift each other up? <laughs> we, we, um, we've done it once. Um, we could do it again. It was just at a, a, the beginning of the year, um, and... Yeah, they, they know each other, but it ended up being people who, who wouldn't normally go out for coffee. And I had um, I got to have coffee with someone that I, I know peripherally, but got, got to know her much better. So, And faculty that's the or staff and faculty. faculty. Um, oh, no, staff also. We included everyone in the room in the department. So um, the, the lunches have the same effect. It's just getting people who wouldn't normally um, be together um, talk to one another, and that, that's really powerful. Yeah. I didn't mean to take that last question. I bet there's time for one more. You want another one? Yeah. Okay, one more. That's so easy. Oh, over here. Hi, I'm Sophie Beal from the Department of Spanish and Portuguese Studies. And I'm curious if you have advice for instances when the group chemistry isn't what you'd like it to be. <laughs> That's a simple question. Yeah. Actually, I have a social event. <laughs> you know, because sometimes, you know, like, um, I, I just threw that off the top of my head because, um, you know, um, even when people don't always get along, you know, sometimes maybe the end of the semester, there's a get-together, maybe uh, it's hard for people not to get along around food. Maybe, you know. <laughs> yeah. That, that's certainly critical. It, but but the, uh, I referenced earlier one of um, my, my inspirations and, and really my mentor, um, the department head before me, Carola Shamaru was her name. Um, she came in when I was an assistant professor and we were somewhat of a, I would say, dysfunctional department at that point. Um, one of the key things that she did beyond the, the social, which, which I agree completely is, is important, 
but, but she actually led us through a structured strategic planning process. And I completely rolled my eyes and did not want anything to do with this. Um, and it was a, it was a big time commitment, uh, multiple sessions over a summer. Um, and I honestly remember absolutely nothing that was discussed during that strategic planning session. Um, but what I do remember is emerging from the other end, feeling like I belonged to the department for the first time and feeling like we were a group. And then layered on top of that were a series of social events that have really maintained that for a very long time. So as a leader, I've been the, 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 uh, the fortunate benefactor of that initial work, but that um, just the process, not necessarily the outcome of it or the, um, you know, what was really discussed during the strategic planning, but the process itself was really critical in helping us to see ourselves as a group. You know, and then one more thing I would add to that is in the College of Design, we have something we call the Research and Creative Activity Showcase. You know, sometimes when people don't get along, I think it might be, you know, um, maybe they don't know much about each other's work. And, you know, the more we learn about each other and we communicate with ourselves, I think it gets a little easier. You know, sometimes it has to do with respecting the contribution, um, you know, the other, um, the other departments or the other programs that bring into the table. I think, you know, for example, in the College of Design, we have, um, you know, that's why my position is research, creative scholarship and engagement. We have people who do creative work, creative scholarship, and we have um, people who do, um, you know, social science type research or humanities. And, you know, we have to respect each other because, you know, not only we have professional programs and we have um, research programs. So most times, you know, the more we learn about each other and we see and we can work together, you know, so we get to respect each other and, um, and we get along sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. So please, oh, does someone have something else? Well, I just think it was, it relates to what Brandon said before, in addition to what you said, it's what's the root cause and can you address that and can you do it on your own or do you need some outside help to, to get at what's going on? I like trying the social and the food first. <laughs> so please join me in thanking our panelists for their time today and sharing their experiences with us. And with that, I would like to ask Dr. Brandon Sullivan to join me at the podium to share leadership and talent development research update. Dr. Chelsea Dunkel will follow to discuss the impact of these findings and connect them to what we've heard from our guest speakers. Oh, there we go. Okay, I think we're good. All right, I'll stay by the microphone. Sorry, I, I tend to want to walk around. Um, so, as I said, we have a lot of data uh, from the leadership programs that we've been doing over the last few years. And so we have a little bit of information to sort of share that's a little more um, maybe kind of objective about a piece of, of what uh, it's like to be uh, an academic leader. Um, and so before I dive into what our data says, and, and uh, Chelsea is going to go into kind of how it all fits together, um, I just want to level set around you know, why would we do assessment uh, as part of a leadership program. And assessment is absolutely critical, uh, an absolutely critical part of a leadership program. And there's three reasons why we do it. Uh, one is, oh, okay, I guess I'll just stand here and talk into the microphone. I just touched this and it went off. Um, <laughs> increasing self-awareness. Um, Science tells us that most people overestimate our level of self-awareness. Uh, most people don't really accurately know how others experience us and the impact that we have on others. 
And this is especially true if you're moving from a role where you're focused more on uh, disciplinary expertise or technical expertise into a leadership role. If you're new to a leadership role, you probably don't have a lot of sense for how others experience you as a leader. So developing self-awareness is absolutely critical. Um, identifying skill gaps, right? So the skills that it takes to be successful um, as a, a faculty member doing research, teaching, um, that kind of thing is very different from the skills it takes to lead people. Um, there isn't a lot of overlap there many times. And so an assessment is very helpful in pinpointing what are those specific skills that I need to develop through a leadership program or with mentors or with coaches. So assessments are, are, are a key part there. And then the last part is understanding derailment risks. And derailment risks, um, not a lot of assessments get at those. But what they are are behaviors that may be really effective in one context that can really get in your way once you're a leader. And to give you an example that you'll see in the data that I'm going to show in a minute, um, if you're someone who, when you're, you're under a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, you tend to go into your office, close the door, and focus on getting work done, right? That's probably a great thing if your job is to write papers, analyze data, that kind of thing. But if your job is to lead a department, that's probably going to get in your way because at times of stress, times of pressure, what a department's going to need is a leader who is out and about and, and talking to people. So that's an example of something that may be a strength. And then as you get into a leadership role, it becomes a derailer. And an assessment is a very uh, good way to get at what are some of those derailers that I might face as a leader. We also wanted to make sure that the assessment that we picked was the right one. There's a lot of assessments out there. Um, and some of them are good and some of them are not good. Um, and so we looked at three criteria primarily to pick an assessment. Um, the first was it needed to be rooted in peer-reviewed research and science. There's a lot that we know from research and psychology and the social sciences um, over the last many, many decades. Um, and there's some assessment tools that are based on that, and there are some assessment tools that are not. And so we wanted it to be based on you know, rigorous research so we knew it was telling us something important. Um, the second thing is we wanted it to be validated for leadership roles. There's lots of assessments out there that have they're not going to tell you anything about leadership. Um, so we wanted a tool that had been validated for leadership effectiveness. So we knew that the feedback that participants are getting was relevant for leadership. And then third, we wanted a tool that would go beyond surface level insights. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there that, you know, is good at kind of giving you a language to talk about your preferences and things like that. We wanted something that would get a little bit deeper than that. And when we looked uh, across the assessment world, there weren't a ton that met all three criteria. Uh, we selected one called the Hogan Assessments. It's actually a battery of assessments that actually met these three criteria. And, and I say this just to kind of level set for you um, the kinds of things that we were thinking about and what's behind this data. And I could, I could lecture on the Hogan, but um, just to give you a sense for what that, that tool is. So what we have is data from the past three years. We started using the, the Hogan assessments as part of our college leads program when we introduced it three years ago. Um, and we now have uh, over 200 faculty and almost 700 staff that have taken the assessment as part of leadership programs. Um, and we're continuing to collect data. Uh, so we're going to be updating this as we go. Um, so I'm just going to give you kind of a preview, and then Chelsea is going to kind of bring it home by tying it together. So I'm going to show you a lot of data, and I'm only going to hit a few highlights here. Um, so the assessment measures three buckets of things. You can kind of think of it that way. The first are everyday behaviors. So the first set of scales measures, you know, on a, on a typical day, how are other people likely to experience you? 
And uh, what you see here uh, is our faculty data, the average scores on the faculty data. And I won't go through all of this stuff here, but you can see the highest is on what's called learning approach. And learning approach is sort of related to openness to experience and um, particularly liking to learn from courses and reading books and kind of traditional learning methods. Probably not a surprise that faculty score really high on that, and that's a typical trait that we see. Uh, sociability, you'll see, is the lowest, and that's a pretty low average score uh, there uh, compared to you know, sort of your general working population. Probably also not a surprise. We heard a lot of that theme throughout the panel discussion. Most faculty, or the average faculty member, is pretty introverted. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that does create potentially some, some challenges in terms of, of leadership. Uh, when we look at the staff data, and this is a, a, a kind of a headline throughout it, it doesn't look that different, actually, from the, the faculty data. Um, you'll see a little bit lower on the learning approach. That makes some sense, given the difference in the roles. Um, and one thing that I would highlight is the ambition score is pretty low for staff. And ambition is really about being assertive. People who are highly ambitious are comfortable asserting a perspective and a point of view. Um, and on average, the staff who have gone through our leadership program uh, are people who like to be in more of a support role, right? They, they like to support the work of other people, not necessarily put themselves out there and driving agendas themselves. And that you know, may or may not be what you want, um, but it is something that we see very clearly in, in the data. And what it means is if, you know, if you're low on ambition and you're expected to drive an agenda or have a really strong opinion, that's going to be really hard for you to do. So that's uh, you know, kind of a glimpse of a little bit of a, a leadership challenge there as well. We can also look at differences by role. And we don't see a lot of differences in our data, but there's a few, and I want to highlight them. Uh, so this is a really important one. This is the biggest difference across those everyday behaviors. And um, what we see is, so senior faculty leaders, these are deans, associate deans, folks at that level, um, are very high on adjustment. And adjustment is really about kind of emotional stability. That's what it's called in the, the psychological research, right? So high adjustment, um, what this looks like is you come across to others as pretty even keeled, calm and collected, even under stress and pressure, uh, but also maybe a little bit resistant to feedback, maybe a little bit aloof sometimes. You know, things don't shake you quite as much. Um, when you look at your faculty uh, not in leadership roles, a lot lower, right? So lower on adjustment, a little more emotionally reactive, um, but also more open to feedback. So you kind of put those together, you got the chairs right in the middle of all that, right? So, so what you, you start to see there is a little bit of a difference that might create a leadership challenge. And Chelsea is going to talk a little more about that as well in a minute. Okay, so the second bucket uh, of things that the Hogan assesses are the derailment risks. And this is kind of the fun one in some ways. It, if you go through it, it, it really kind of hits you between the eyes, the feedback. But this is really stuff that we often aren't aware of or don't really think much about. Um, so when we look at our faculty data, there's two that are the highest uh, derailment risks for faculty. Um, one is reserved, that's the highest, and that's like being, you know, that's basically related to being introverted. Uh, but what this means is when, when you're being reserved as a strength, you're focused on your work, on your tasks, you're getting things done, you're working independently. When it's a derailer is when you're in a leadership role and you're doing that instead of interacting with people. And that's where it can become, become a challenge. And then the other one that's also almost as high is leisurely. And, and I, that name isn't really a great name for it. What this is really about is sort of being 
um, kind of a little passive aggressive sort of. Um, so someone who is, when this is a strength, it comes across as being cooperative and agreeable and you know, kind of agreeing to, yeah, let's do that, that makes sense. When it becomes a derailer, it's where um, you say maybe, yeah, that makes sense, let's do that, I agree to that. In your head, you're thinking, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard, I don't have time for that, I don't like that, but I don't wanna say it because then that creates conflict and instead I'll just agree to it and then I'll forget about it. And so high leisurely is that. And, and I think in some ways it's really functional when you're being bombarded with millions of things to do and you can't do it all. But this is something that can be a derailment risk for, for leaders. When we look at the staff data, it's very similar to the, the faculty data. Uh, actually, you have a little bit higher on the dutiful. Um, and that's about really wanting, you know, sort of to simplify it, you want your boss to be happy with you if you're high and dutiful. Um, faculty, not as much uh, as staff there. Um, but otherwise, we see fairly similar trends. Um, and what you see are higher scores on those derailers that have to do with kind of avoiding and withdrawing. When we look at differences by role, uh, we see a couple. So m most of these, there's not a big difference, but these two do, do shift a little bit. Um, so your deans and your associate deans essentially are more reserved and less excitable than your faculty who are not in leadership roles. Right, and this kind of goes together, and it, it kind of suggests you know, a, a dean or associate dean who's pretty cool and collected, uh, an individual faculty member may be getting pretty worked up about something and feel like the leader's not listening to them. And, and so you kind of get that dynamic going a little bit there. And then the last bucket of things measured by the Hogan are work-related values. These are things that motivate you at work, essentially. And this won't be a big surprise, the high scores, I think, to anybody. The highest for faculty is science, right? That's why most faculty are here at the university is to pursue their scholarship and research. That is an incredibly high score, right? So that's something that's very motivating. Um, and then um, altruistic is another big one. And that has to do with, essentially, you're motivated by the greater good, right? You want to be doing something that contributes beyond just your own day-to-day -day work. So those two things really do characterize, I think, the culture at the university. Now, the thing that, that we often forget about and that can ca cause a leadership challenge are some of those low scores. So if you look at commerce, right, that's really, really low. What that means is that most faculty don't really have a lot of interest in finance and budget and the business side of the university, and you heard a little bit of that from the panel. But that's a big leadership challenge. Uh, and so that's something that, that you know, needs maybe a little bit of attention. It's certainly getting a lot of attention. We don't have a choice a lot of times. Um, and then the other low, uh, lower score is on affiliation. And this one is an interesting one when you compare it with um, altruistic. Because what that, what that means is that your average faculty member is very motivated by the greater good. Um, but interpersonally, maybe not always focused on how do I build good relationships with the people around me. And that's where the self-awareness often comes into play, is being kind of aware of that. It doesn't mean you, you can't do the affiliation stuff. It just means that's not a naturally kind of motivating activity. Uh, for staff, uh, we see, again, very similar uh, trends, a little bit lower on, on the science there. Um, the rest is, is very, very similar. And then I think a lot of this reflects the culture of the university and why most people are here. All right, so that was a quick whirlwind through some highlights of the data. I'm gonna turn it uh, now over to uh, Dr. Chelsea Dun Dunkel, who's gonna talk about kind of what this all means. Thank you, Brandon. 
Um, so you have a handout in front of you called, I think it's called Research Themes. Um, so I will highlight things up here, but most of those are also covered in that handout if you want a place to reference later or to just follow along. Um, a couple notes about faculty culture. Um, there are kind of two big things that come up, for me at least, looking at this data. And the first is that faculty are generally really aligned with their both their research and their teaching uh, missions and components of their work. They tend to be focused on lifelong learning, science, um, trying to understand things at a really deep and nuanced level, um, which is really suitable for the, for the research component of the job. And then the other piece is that altruism that, that Brandon just mentioned and that people are really attentive and that they really care about serving the greater good, um, which comes into play with teaching as an opportunity to really fulfill that, that altruistic goal and motivation. And then you couple that with getting an opportunity to also help people understand the science that interests you through teaching um, and mentorship. And, and it really creates a, a nice fit for a lot of the work that faculty do. On the other side of things, we notice another set of trends amongst faculty. Um, we see this introverted group, um, a group of really deep thinkers who prefer kind of some independent thinking time and space to really work through problems and discovery. Um, as some of that, those derailment indicators that Brandon mentioned, we do see a kind of a risk averse and reserved um, group that may avoid kind of taking really public stances in terms of kind of controversial topics or things where it's sort of outside their comfort zone. They might give that sort of pleasant response when really they're thinking something different, which can make it challenging to kind of work through pressing problems um, or things that might come up that, that need addressing. This um, mechanism to sort of isolate as a way to cope and deal with stress sometimes creates a really productive space where people can kind of hide away, get a lot of good solitary research done, um, but sometimes makes it challenging to really kind of work through collaborative issues or things like that. Um, we also see a group that's not motivated strongly um, in general by money or visibility. We see that with the commerce value and also that affiliation piece. Um, and then some of the ones that um, Brandon didn't discuss directly have to do with um, do you like being in the spotlight? Do you like getting public recognition or do you seek kind of positions of power or things like that? Uh, some of our panelists touched on this when they talked about kind of needing to lean on peers in order to kind of promote themselves um, through others and, and that that's not something that necessarily comes super easily for, for a lot of faculty members. If we turn to staff culture a bit, um, one thing that I think is, is quite um, neat with this research is just how much the staff values and the faculty values mirror each other and that we'd see um, people motivated on the staff side by opportunities to be helpful to serve others. Um, we see above average science and learning approach scores, not as high as faculty, but people that definitely appreciate being in the environment that promotes um, science and gaining a deeper understanding. We also see folks that tend to avoid overly competitive spaces um, with that ambition score that Brandon discussed as well as um, sort of this power value or things like that. 
Um, sometimes that works well in our current structure at the university. There's sort of a ceiling as to how far staff can climb in our structure. Um, and so we see a group that um, fits well within our current structure and also um, can be really supportive to the, to the science and research work that, that many people are doing here at the university. Uh, as Brennan also noted, uh, if we look at kind of how senior faculty um, or senior leadership differs from sort of rank and file faculty, um, we do see a group at the senior level of leadership that's a bit more stable under pressure, under stress. There's a bit of a buffer there, um, which is probably good because they're a more exposed group that, that has to kind of confront a lot of stressors that not everyone else has to deal with on their everyday uh, basis. But some of the, the catch to that is that they might not be interpreting things as stressful that the people that they lead are actually finding stressful. So um, kind of figuring out a way to gauge how people around them are experiencing stress, particularly when, when we know that this group moves away from stress. So they might not wear it in the same way that the other folks might. So that could be sort of a dance that um, you have to kind of navigate through and sort of how do you not rattle your team but bring them along with you um, through difficult, challenging periods. I want to leave you with two potential blind spots um, that, that this kind of um, research is sort of highlighting that things that these are things that we might need to kind of be extra attentive to in certain spaces. Um, and the first is that faculty and staff may be hesitant to think of the university as a business with financial needs and goals. Um, it's been historically a pretty faux pas thing to talk about the university as a business. Um, but as you heard all of the leaders up here at some point today mention, there's financial obligations that come with working at the university. Um, we have lots of buildings that require electricity. We have lots of people um, who depend on this space for their livelihood. Um, and we know that research and education funding is routinely cut and um, it's important to think about um, how might we amp this up as a value in certain spaces in certain times, knowing that we value altruism and science so much more than we value commerce and pursuing financial needs, um, that kind of where are there times where we might engage in a thought exercise of what would happen if we valued all three of those things equally? How might that impact our decisions and kind of what we chose to pursue and, and how we chose to go about doing it? The other potential blind spot is um, that we don't have sort of an array of traditional leadership styles at the university. Um, a more corporate leader is probably a little bit more ambitious, um, kind of seeking spotlight more, probably a bit more extroverted. And that's not something that our culture tends to propagate. It's not something that we necessarily value um, or seek in terms of who we hire, who we promote, who we retain. Um, I think Dr. Burr mentioned that um, we need people, more people to think of sort of startup ideas or things like that here at the university. And those aren't ideas that are sort of regularly floated or encouraged or nurtured here. Um, and not to say that we need to kind of shift to a, a target or a really corporate space, um, but are there spaces or times or opportunities where we could sort of reward those behaviors or be encouraging people to think a little bit differently than how we've always thought and how might that impact or help or hinder um, certain initiatives that we'd like to move forward. Now I threw a lot at you. I think Rosie's about to cut me off, but. 
one minute. Um, so I'll turn to the panelists, I guess, and see if you have any reactions or things that you'd like to comment on um, in response to this. Well, I, I guess I have a question. I guess I have a question about the um, uh, what what you're seeing in in terms of um, qualities in a, a faculty. Um, what was the the title? But the the associate deans and deans, for example, versus faculty. Um, are those traits something that that distinguish a, a, a faculty member that will ultimately become a leader, or is that something that a leader acquires along the way? Um. So what we know from the Hogan research is that the, the traits tend to be relatively stable over time. So it's likely that uh, people with those higher adjustment scores, a little bit more of a stress buffer, tend to be more likely to pursue leadership and also more likely to be able to sustain themselves in the role and stay in it. Hi, I'm Barb McMorris from the School of Nursing. Um, as somebody who has gone through the Lees cohort um, and also just been thinking about my role as a, a faculty I want to just react to the commerce and the business ideal. I actually, I will say, I came to back to the university after a two-year stint in corporate research because I didn't like the profit margin. And so I think that um, we need more education and more skill building in that regard and, and in terms of sort of coaching people to, to be more, more business model because a lot of us came into this because we didn't want to go corporate. So I just want to I just want to react to that um, because it's something that I really made a conscious choice about, and so I'm not surprised by the the data at all around that low commerce. And so I think thinking of it as an opportunity to think about how do we encourage people who are sort of anti-business, anti-corporate to come around to the the reality that we have to we actually have to to go that route because we have to fund ourselves. Um, I think it's an opportunity we need to. So I'm glad that you're pointing it out. So I didn't have a question. I just had a comment. Thank you for that. Um, that's absolutely right. And that's what the data show is that we are a culture that really values science and helping much more than we value money or financial um, pursuits. And so that, that will continue to be a blind spot as long as kind of that culture stays the same. But how do we sort of acknowledge it as a blind spot and, and work with it and try not to resist it when, when we can't resist it. Okay, thank you Dr. Sullivan and Dr. Dunkel for your insights. I'd also like to do another call out to our panelists for their participation and their potential, their ideas this afternoon. As a reminder, an audio recording of today's session and the research update slide deck will be available online at z.umn.edu um, slash engaged you. Evaluations will be sent to you before the end of the week, and thank you in advance for taking the time to provide us with your valuable feedback. Several of my consultant colleagues from Leadership and Talent Development will be available as soon as we close the session if you have further questions about our work or the information that you heard today. So thank you very much for your attendance, and have a good evening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Supervisory Development Course Podcast. To learn more about employee engagement, please visit z.umn.edu slash engagedu, E-N-G-A-G-E-D-U. The podcast is created by Leadership and Talent Development within the Office of Human Resources at the University of Minnesota. If you have questions or would like to reach out, please email us anytime at ltd at umn.edu.